we've been talking about the armor of God, and a lot of uh, uh, people, and if you've heard, if you've been in church any time in your life, you've heard lots of sermons about the armor of God, and most people uh, point us to uh, Paul's experience as a prisoner of Rome and say, you know, Paul was looking at this soldier that was guarding him in prison, and he was getting his imagery for the armor of God from that soldier. Uh, and while I understand that there's some, uh, some cognates between what the armor of the soldier was wearing and what Paul describes uh, is actually there, it's really uh, inconsistent with someone like the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi and would have been steeped in the imagery of the Old Testament to have drawn from a completely new uh, image. And so what I've been telling you and uh, the direction that I want us to think together in is that Paul was actually drawing from the rich, very rich, and, and resplendent imagery of the Old Testament of God Himself as the divine warrior. And it's His armor that Paul is describing. The armor that God Himself wears when he acts as the divine warrior and when he enters into battle to vindicate and free his people from sin and darkness. There's nothing wrong with the Roman imagery because that Roman imagery also has some parallels. But think of what Paul was doing, not only in Ephesians 6, but in other places where he draws on that imagery of warfare and the imagery of armor and clothing us with battle raiment so that we can wage a spiritual war. Listen carefully, folks. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness, cosmic forces that are arrayed behind what we see as the actual enemies. When you think of uh, ISIS or you think of some Boko Haram, if you think of any of these terrible terrorist organizations or an evil political system, behind it there is a spiritual and cosmic force, demonic, satanic, that is driving that. And these forces, these uh, 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 spiritual forces are vibrating with the fallen hearts of human beings. And Christians as well as those in the world, we tend to want to vibrate with those things and find identity in them. And we'll find our own, believe me. And perhaps we'll get into some of that this morning. So this is what uh, the direction that I'm trying to take you. So let's look at these verses. What I'm going to do is read only 1 through 9 and then 14 through 20 of Isaiah 59. This is the direct place that Paul is quoting. And Paul pulls out uh, verse 16, 17 is where he's going. But listen carefully as we read these verses, 1 through 9, and then we'll pick up again in verse 14 through 20. So hear the word of God. Behold, the, hand, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, give birth to iniquity, they they hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them, knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness and for brightness we walk in gloom. Now go down to verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. It displeased Him that there was no justice He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought Him salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so He will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and to the coastlands he will render repayment. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. This is the Word of God. The sweep of the book of Ephesians is that Jesus Christ comes into the world to bring new life or second birth, regeneration. And so in the first half of the book, the book is six chapters, he separates it in half. The first three chapters, he talks about this new life New life that we find in Him by confessing our sins, repenting, believing the Gospel, and receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so there's this new life. And then he goes on further in the last part of the first three chapters, and he describes a new humanity. That's you and I. I don't know how many of you have Jewish uh, background in your blood, but probably not many of us. And so we are numbered among this other group that God takes and grafts in or joins to the original people of God. We become one new humanity. 
That's everybody, folks, that believes in Jesus Christ, regardless of what nation they come to, what background, how rich or poor, whether they're a slave or a free person. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have now been adopted into His family, and you become one of His people, one of His children. And then in the second half of the book, starting in chapter 4 on to the end, he describes a new behavior, new ethics, new uh, actions on the part of this people because of who they are. So I've told you from the beginning, just to remind you, bring you up to speed, that who you are must determine what you do. And we often get this backwards. I think the world gets it backwards. And I think a lot of Christianity, whether it's Protestant or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, makes no difference. The three great branches, we all fail in this area. We think that by doing things right, we can become better people. And the Apostle Paul in all of his writings, and I would, agree, I would argue much of the Old Testament, that is not the pattern. The pattern is become. The pattern is God coming by His own power and doing something in you and through you, and then you live that out in your life. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And finally, he talks about these new relationships. We've already looked at these. He talks about marriage. He talks about the home. He talks about uh, work. And he talks about now, this portion we're in now, he's talking about our relationship to the unseen world. And Christians get so squirrely when we talk about the unseen world and we make mistakes, we either go all the way to one side and say there's no such thing as the devil, the devil's just a figment of imagination, it's a personification of evil and blah, 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 and we go all that way over to one side, or we go all the way to the other side where the devil's responsible for everything and the devil's behind every doorknob and he's there, at the, you know, he's always after you. And the demons are everywhere and they've got control and oh my goodness, and people wring their hands. And some of you have come from traditions where it's the devil, the devil, the devil. And some come from traditions where, oh come on, let's, let's be, we're modern people, we can't believe in a devil. And the gospel, folks, is not somewhere in between. The Bible doesn't take us in between. Where does it take us? It takes us off the continuum and it says it's 100% the devil, but it's 100% man too as they vibrate with, as they concur with forces of evil, with demonic forces. We all know that. How that works out is another thing. Maybe another sermon at some other point. So we're talking about this belt of righteousness. And as I've been doing, what I'm going to do is follow the same outline pattern. Here's your outline. It's going to be the same for the next few weeks. What is it? What is the belt of righteousness? Then, why do we need it? What is it? Why do we need it? And finally, how did the Apostle Paul look at Because really, folks, what I want to know is how the Apostle Paul understood the belt of righteousness, not what I want to pour into it from my modern 21st century point of view. Yes? Can you all agree with that? We want to know what the Apostle Paul meant when he's describing belt of righteousness. And I've already told you, he's quoting Isaiah 59. So we've got to pull that together and see what is he talking about. Okay, very quickly. Righteousness, when you hear the word righteousness, it can be very, I think this is again one of those words that Christians just get all bent out of shape. We don't really know. I'm going to try to help you, try to give you some categories that will help. Righteousness is the Greek word dikasune. It's one of those words you should know. Now you don't have to try to write it down and all that. And if you do, please write it in Greek. Don't write it in English. 
kidding. Just seeing if you're awake. No, it's a Greek word. It, it's, it's used in the Old Testament too. It's different in Hebrew. But in, the, the Greek word is dikasune. And this particular word, it comes from a, the root is dik, D-I-K. And the, and the way this word is used is so rich, so thick, that you can't just apply one sliver of meaning to it. You have to look at the whole thing. Everything it means. And then you have to look at the context of how the author is using this word because it, it can go in a lot of directions. And so I'm going to give you two categories that will be very helpful to you. When we think of righteousness, as Protestants, we like to think of righteousness as that which is imputed to us. Yes, everybody, ha- everybody all you Calvinists say Amen. Amen, it's imputed righteousness, it's forensic justification, it's faith alone, grace alone, yes, yes, yes. But then there's another kind of righteousness which you are supposed to be doing in your life, and that's where Protestants break out in hives. Because after all, wasn't that what the Reformation is all about? It's grace alone, grace alone. Yes, of course it's grace alone. But there's another kind of righteousness that God talks about. In fact, He talks about it almost more than the other. Okay? Are you with me? I haven't lost anybody? I'll know if you get up and leave uh, that, it's, that it's probably working. There's an active righteousness. There's two kinds I'm going to give you. Active righteousness and passive righteousness. Active righteousness is our righteousness. It is what we are doing. It's our active obedience. And Protestants get uncomfortable with this because why? Think about it, folks. Why do we get uncomfortable? Because the human tendency is to take active righteousness, our good doing, our moral behavior, our character, and invest it, fill it up with what? Starts with an M, ends in a T, and the middle words are E-R-I. Merit. We take our good doing and we fill it with merit, with value. And we say, here, I did this. This is worth this. And we apply value to that good doing. We do that. And the danger is that the human tendency is always, whether you're Christian, not Christian, doesn't matter what religion you belong to, the human tendency is to want to take our merit, our good doings, and present them to God and say, here, look at this, isn't this great? And the interesting thing is, God will actually look at your merit and say, you know, that's, that's alright, it's not too bad. But the problem is there's something else out there that's competing with that merit. And that something else out there is what? His holiness. And so our merit is always competing with God's holiness. But it does not, it's not that it does not exist. And it's not that it's just filthy rags either. Some of you that know your Bible already think, well, it's filthy rags, filthy rags. No, no, no. Listen to this. Active righteousness is the active obedience that you are to be performing as Christian people. Out of who you are. Okay? Listen, let me give you just a few scriptures. Listen carefully. Got to go quickly. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 6, Beware of practicing your dikausune, your righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness 
before others to be seen. Then you will have no reward, no merit. That's coming out of the words of your Savior. Okay? Listen carefully. You'll have no reward from your Father. Here, John, 1 John. If you know that God is righteous, if you know that He's righteous, you're sure everyone who practices righteousness, practices righteousness, has been born of Him. Listen to this one. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, the cleanness of my hands. This is, this is David. You all know David, right? Let's go, listen to the chutzpah this guy has got. It's amazing. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, the cleanness of my hand. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and wickedly depart, and, and the wickedly and not departed wickedly from my God. His rules were before me. His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless. Paul said that as well. I was blameless. I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. My dikasune. The cleanness of my hands in His sight. He goes on to say, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Are you getting uncomfortable? Are you squirming yet? Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity that is in me. Now these are, these are biblical writers writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is an active kind of righteousness. I remember Dr. Walkie telling us in seminary that the, in the Old Testament, he was an Old Testament professor and he said this, and I've said it to you before, but I want to repeat it. Then we'll move on. If you have questions, we can talk about it later. That righteousness in the Old Testament was seen as a person disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of another. And wickedness was defined as disadvantaging someone at the expense of another. You with me? That was the, the, the rich understanding of righteousness and wickedness. So, Jesus, now, put that into context. Here's Jesus, a rabbi who understood those things, and he teaches a parable called the Good Samaritan. Do you see it? The Good Samaritan practiced active righteousness when he disadvantaged himself for the sake of the man, the Jewish man, who was beaten and robbed on the side of the road, and it cost him something. Wickedness, on the other hand, is taking advantage of someone, disadvantaging them so that it advantages you. So look, there's nothing wrong with making a profit, right? I mean, we live in America. Capitalism is great. It's okay to, to, to make a profit. But it's not okay. My, my older kids were here, and they were traveling from Dallas, and they had to drive. Uh, they, they made a stop in Carlsbad and spent the night in Carlsbad. They stayed in a seedy hotel. Guess what they paid? Go ahead, anybody. Take a guess. It's more than $100. Huh? 200 You hit the nail on the head. You get the prize. I'll see you after church. I have a prize for you. $200 for a seedy hotel in Carlsbad. They're gouging people because the oil industry is going crazy, so they can charge whatever they want, right? Well, God would say that's wicked. 
The Old Testament would have seen that as usury. You with me? Charging way more than it's worth because you can. Because you can get away with it. And so the, the, the idea of disadvantaging someone, the Good Samaritan is the example. Jesus said this. Look, Listen, folks. He said this to his people. He said, if you love those that love you, what thanks do you have? Even wicked people do that. That's no big deal. If you love those that love you. But who should you love? Who? Your enemies. And what I'm seeing on Facebook, we don't love our enemies, folks. We hate their guts. All nine of them. Or at least five of them. We hate their guts. And I'm your pastor and I'm speaking for God and I'm telling you right now, I'm warning you. No more. May it stop. At least among this little church. No more calling names and degrading people. You know, we don't agree with them. Fine. But there's a better way than hating their guts. And I'll tell you, God's going to judge the church long before He judges America. Yes? Say amen. I'm telling you, say amen. He is going to judge the church long before He judges America. Make no mistake. The biggest church in the United States today is not preaching the gospel. It's preaching something else. So where do you think it's going to start? The New Testament writers said, Peter in particular said judgment would start at the household of God. So folks, let's get our house in order. Let's be salt and light. Yes? Let's be salt and light. We do not have to capitulate. I'm going to show you there's a different way. Passive, active righteousness is us doing the right thing. For Jesus' sake and in His name. Acting righteously. Active obedience. Quickly. Passive righteousness is the one we like as Reformed Protestants, every kind of Protestant loves this. We love it because it is the Gospel. So is active, but this is the heart of it. Because if you don't get this, your active doing is just dead works. It's just religion. So passive righteousness is what we call imputed. You all know what imputed means? It means reckoned to you. God comes along in His Son Jesus. You're trusting Jesus. You come to Him and you say, Lord Jesus, I've, I've reached the bottom of myself. I'm powerless to help myself. I need You. I don't need just part of You. I need all of You. I need You to uh, cause me to be born again. Alright? So at that moment, you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart. Whatever language you want to use, you repent of your sins, you believe the Gospel, whatever. And a deposit is made into your account that is infinite. It's an infinite deposit of righteousness. It is placed in you. You don't become righteous. You are clothed with righteousness. You are, you, you, he hands you a, a, a breastplate, are you with me? Of righteousness, and he, you put it on the outside. So unlike our Catholic brothers and sisters, and unlike the, the Eastern Church, which is different, 
unlike them, we do not believe that we are infused with this righteousness, but rather it is counted to our account. It'd be like somebody coming and putting $10 million in my bank account and now telling me, Chuck, here is 10,000 good dollars. They're good money, good money. Now take that money and do good with that money. Live out of that money to do good to the world around you. Be salt and light out of this money. You with me? That's what it is. It's a deposit made once and forever into your account. God never takes it back. He never, he's not an Indian giver. Excuse the political incorrectness. He doesn't take it back. He gives it to you. And then He expects you under the power and work of the Holy Spirit to live out of that actively. Active righteousness. Are you with me? So they go together, folks. Passive righteousness. Very quick. Got to go quick. By works of the law, no one shall be dikausune. Nobody shall be justified. But now dikausune, righteousness of God, manifested apart from the law. Righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This you can't work. You can't get this any other way than simply trusting Jesus. Yes, you trust Him. He makes the deposit in your life. He does it because He's fully confident in the work of His Holy Spirit among each and every one of us. Figure that. He's not counting on you to do it on your own. He gives you Holy Spirit so that you can live out of that fullness. Isn't that wonderful? Out of that riches, so every time you write a check out of that righteous bank account actively, you know exactly where it's coming from. And it's no skin off your nose. It's no, no, no cost to you. He's put the deposit. why He can demand that you forgive. It's why He can demand that you love your enemies. Because He's not asking you to pay the price to forgive. He's not asking you to love the enemy. Out of your own largesse, He's saying, love your enemy as I've loved you. Do you see it? Out of that rich love that He has for us, we are to be able to look at every lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual, crossover, whatever they are, and every Supreme Court justice, and every Democrat politician or Republican. We're to be able to look at every human being, whether they're black, yellow, red, or white, whatever color they are, whatever their background, whatever their, whether they're wearing a hijab or not, We're to be able to look at those people and see in them the same brokenness that Jesus saw in you and I when He reached down into the gutter and lifted us up. Yes? Because never make that mistake of thinking that there was something good in you that He saw and then He lifted you up. When He found me, I've told you this, I'm ashamed to say it, but He found me in the gutter and thats I will never forget it. I can't forget it. I know who I was. I know who I am without Him. And I have to live in the reality of that brokenness. And I hope every one of you will too. And out of that brokenness, we find a love and a forgiveness so rich, so full. It's deposited into our bank account. And from there, we can step into this world and really and truly make a difference. In every arena. That's passive righteousness. If righteousness came through the law, Christ died for no purpose, Paul said in Galatians. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you think that's just New Testament stuff, listen to this, folks. Listen. And these are just a few. David, the one who said, judge me according to my righteousness, he also said this. Listen, it's amazing. Enter not into judgment with your servant. Before he's saying, judge me. Now he's saying, don't judge me. (laughs) Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Do you see that David was a good theologian? He knew how to take active and passive righteousness and put them together. Something that is, is not easy to do. I'm not saying it's easy to do. It's going to take some effort on our part. Work, work, work. But not for merit, merit, merit. Work, work, work because we love, love, love the one who first what? Gary prayed it in his prayer. The one who first did what? Loved us. And when you get those together, you have the gospel. If you're loving God to try to get Him to love you, you have religion. If you're serving God to try to get Him to like you or approve of you, you have religion. And any of you that are parents, if you treat, I treated my kids that way. I'm ashamed to say it. You perform, I will like you. You don't perform, I don't like you. And any of you parents, if you grew up in a home like that, or you're being a parent like that now, I'll approve of you if you do this. You know that will scar your children. At the same time, what do you know, folks? You can't just tell your kids to do whatever, right? They'll, be, they'll, go, they'll become lunatics. They will lose their minds. So you've got to put guardrails around them and say, here's the rules, do the rule, follow the rules, otherwise there's consequences. Yes. But if you ever tell your children, you don't obey me, they're out. You scar them, you hurt them, you make their life conditional. And they'll live it. And you'll wonder why they hate Christianity. You'll, want, you'll go, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Who wants that? I don't want that. Do you want that? Do you want God to love you based on how well you're doing? If you do, you need some counseling. You need a you need a pastoral counseling and maybe some drugs. <laughs> Who wants that? Who wants to step into the dock and say, "Okay, God, judge me according to my good works." You can do that only after you understand passive righteous only after you understand that all that deposit was made in and for you. Yes? Do you see it? Once you do that, you can step into the dock. You can go boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy. Boldly. Not with the cocky, you know, no, but you're going to, who you got with you? Who's there with you? Hey, look, I got Jesus. He's my lawyer. He's my advocate. He's my lover, my friend. He's standing here with me. Oh, God, judge me according to his righteousness. But then when you go into the world and you're doing, you can say, God, judge me. You know what? I'm actually trying to do good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. Can you put the two together? Do you see it? Okay, real quickly. I'm probably not going to finish, but here we go. James puts them together, I think, in the best way uh, we have. What good? They're not intention. In other words, active and passive are not intention. A lot of times I tell you things are intention. This is one of the times they're not intention. They're, they're in a love affair. They are absolutely in an embrace. They are woven together a web of multiple reciprocity. Don't you love that theology class? Web. They're in a web, a tapestry, active and passive righteousness. Passive first, 
active second, but then they're woven together so that you can live out your life in a way that becomes salt and light. Holiness. That's holiness. Okay, listen. James puts it together. Here it is. What good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Ever bother you that scripture? Can faith, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go, be in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them what they need, what good is that? That's a practical man. I like him. So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have the works to go along with it, is dead. Is dead. It's not partially alive. It's dead. Someone will say to you, here's what we Protestants tend to do unconsciously, albeit unconsciously. We have faith. I have work. You have faith. I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith, what? By my works. In other words, you want to see active faith? It's coming out of who I am. I'm going to live this out. Authentic faith, then here's the point, folks. Authentic faith is always accompanied by active righteousness. Authentic faith being passive, our, our, our passive acceptance of God's work in our lives, our justification for you theologians, our dikaosune, our righteousness, okay, that authentic righteousness that's a deposit made in you is now worked out actively in you in your life. Here's a few quotes, and then we'll, we'll, uh, I, w- I want to wrap it up. And if, if needed, I'll come back next week and, and talk a little bit more about it. Martin Luther, you've heard this very famous quote, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never what? Alone. Martin Luther Sinclair Ferguson, we are now recipients of an irrevocable justification, dikaosune, imputed righteousness. We are now recipients of an irrevocable, can't be taken back, in Christ. Which in turn, now listen to how Ferguson put it, which in turn leads to a growth in righteousness in ourselves. This is what we call in theology sanctification. Okay? And finally, another New Testament scholar, love this quote, G.G. Finlay said this, the completeness of pardon for past offenses and integrity of character that belongs to the justified life is woven together into an impenetrable mail. Now, mail, he's not talking about the post office. He's talking about a coat of mail, chain mail. You've seen pictures of this, right? And, you know, the warriors and ancient world would wear a chain of mail and it was woven little pieces of mail and it was very hard for an arrow or a sword or other a club to to go through that mail and so that he's saying that those two things together active and passive are woven together into a breastplate that can withstand the assails of the enemy as he accuses you and slanders you on the one hand your passive Righteousness, that which you've done nothing for and is actually the righteousness of Jesus 
is protecting you, right? Because what do you want to hold up? When Satan is accusing you, what do you want to hold up? How good you're doing? There's holes in that armor. Yes? Yes? Wake up. There's holes in that armor. Because we have all sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Somewhere along the line, there's a hole in that armor. So I don't want to hold up that armor when he's slandering and accusing me and telling me I'm not a Christian and telling me I'm no good for nothing. All true, by the way. When he's slandering and accusing me and using the truth to do it, when he's doing that, I don't want to hold up my righteousness. I want to hold up Jesus' righteousness. So that part of the armor will protect you against the slander and accusations of the enemy. But what about the active part? What about when you're in your life reaching out into the lives of others? They need to see that you're different. Yes? That you actually do love people and not only those that love you. Now, I, I can only use myself. I hate to do this. I hate to be self-referential. I'd much rather accuse you of sin. But it's only fair. My Glodo taught us in seminary, don't talk about your congregation, talk about you. I, I struggle with this, and I know you do as well. It's hard for me to love people that don't love me back. Yes? Some of you are married to people like that. Or your kids, you know, you do all this stuff for your children, and you want, where's the gratitude? Well, you're not going to see it probably till they're 40 or 50. I don't know. But Jesus tells us, don't try to go do it just by your willpower. Love those that love you. No. Love your enemies. How? How do you do it? You do it by looking at the one who gave you, listen, both your active and your passive righteousness. Yes? Even though the active is yours, where is it coming from? Where's it coming from? Think for a moment. Where is that active righteousness that God is actually saying, well, well done, good and faithful servant. Where is that coming from? Folks, if it's coming from you, it's filthy rags. But if when you reach out to somebody you don't like or you make friends with that lesbian, gay, trans, whatever it is, person at your job and you say, you know, I'm going to embrace them and love them instead of hating them like everybody's telling me I got to hate these people or hate this ruling or what, you know, hate, 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 hate. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go on to the gospel. I'm going to get off this continuum and I'm going to love them radically, serve them radically and declare the gospel without compromise. How? How? Radically. It's not going to be easy. And so in the next few months, and perhaps for a while, our church is going to need to talk about this. We're going to need to learn how to be Christians in this new environment. Yes? Were you all disturbed by the ruling? And by what went on in Charleston? We don't have too many black people in El Paso, uh, so it's not, we're not a racially charged community, but you know, there's, there's some enormous changes coming to our culture, and I'm hoping that if you will listen 
to what I preach and what our church is going to teach regarding these things that you will begin to change and transform. I'm not asking you to join a political party. I'm just asking you to be a Christian. Just be who we're supposed to be. And we can revolutionize the world. The, the people will look, and this is what I think is happening. I'll just close with this. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died. He was stripped naked. He lost everything, folks, for you. And not only for you, folks, but as you. In other words, as they pinned Him to the cross, we were crucified. How? With Him. We died with Him. We were not spectators, folks. We were put there too. And when He came down from that cross and was raised from the dead, He told His church, you and I, this. Go into all the world, the gay world, the lesbian world, whatever that world is, go into that world. The Muslim world. The pagan world. The church world. Go. And do what? Make me some disciples. Love them like I've loved you. Bless them like I've blessed you. See yourself as salt and life. Step into the fray. Don't go on one side of the continuum and don't go on the other. Don't go into the cloister. Well, we've got to withdraw. We've got to get into the combat mode. We've got to dig some trenches and be hostile to our culture. No. And we certainly don't want to accommodate. Yes? Right? We're not going to accommodate. We're not going to redefine sin for the sake of the culture. We're going to have to go off the continuum, folks, into the place Jesus wants us. And I believe with all my heart that He's done this intentionally. I thank God for the Supreme Court ruling. And y'all can get mad at me if you want. It's the best thing that ever happened to the church. It's the worst thing that ever happened to the United States. Yes? Here's the question. Can you divide the two? Or do you think the United States of America is the church? I hope not, because it's not. You can be a loyal citizen and patriotic and love your country, but still keep the distinction between the two. So please, folks, let's do this. Let's do this for Jesus' sake, because He's calling us to do it. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be very hard. But I'm going to help you because I'm on the same journey with you. And so will the elders of this church. It's not going to be easy. We live in a different world. But Jesus Christ, as it's been said many times, at the foot of the cross, the ground is what? Out what? It's level. Let's go there. Let's go there together. Because we find our active and passive righteousness there. And we find our enemies there. And we will find our true selves. If you'll do it, you'll find your true self there. In Him. In Him. Let's pray. Father, please help us. These are hard times, difficult times, and everybody's feeling a little bit off balance right now with the, the upheavals in our culture. At the same time, Father, thank You for pushing us against the wall and making us believe Your Gospel. Make us people, as Gary prayed, boys and girls, men and women, 
who are essentially different than the world around us. And yet, Father, I pray that people will find in us a love, a compassion, a winsomeness that is irresistible and at the same time a rock-solid, iron-fisted resolve to hold to the truth of Scripture with no compromise. It's going to take such wisdom. Please give us that wisdom. I'm begging you, Father, as a church. Help us to know how to negotiate these most difficult days and truly own our identity as little ones, little Christians. Please help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.